Every now and again, I question myself about how politically focused my sermons have become over the years. As I've mentioned before, I became a Christian within a fairly evangelical uh, context in the 80s. Within that context at that time, focus was on the individual personal relationship to God through Jesus. So the message, the good news as we understood it was, we're all sinners. Jesus, God has forgiven us through Jesus on the cross. Confess your sins, ask Jesus into your heart, and all will be well. One of the catchphrases was, it's all about relationships. What that meant mostly was it's all about your own relationship with God through Jesus. Most of us in that world at that time thought people who focused on social justice must not have a personal relationship with Jesus. That that's why they were focused on that and not really what was going on in their hearts. So now and again, that voice asks questions of me now. And I think in a good way. Things like, am I still following Jesus? Do I still experience Jesus and the presence of Jesus in my heart? Are the messages that I'm feeling led to share coming from God's word or my own agenda? I think those are very important questions for me to ask continually. And I will say, even with those questions in mind, I don't know how someone could read this passage this morning from the book of Jeremiah and not think it relates to politics. Ultimately, politics is also about relationships, particularly our relationship to our neighbor. How do we treat one another? What rights do human beings have? And beyond mere rights, how do we create a society in which all people flourish? Those are absolutely issues that God addresses constantly and consistently in our scriptures. This morning, I'm particularly thankful of this truth. We live in a very uh, disorienting time, particularly politically. And I believe God gives us guidance. In a time when people who profess to be followers of Christ choose to grasp for power, I believe our scriptures proclaim that God's desire is that we grasp for people to lift them up. In a time when we have an increasingly broad and uh, confusing array of choices for leadership, I believe God reveals to us a general rule to help us evaluate policies, plans, proposals, and that is this. The more people who benefit the closer we are to God's desire for society. 
especially when more of those who benefit are those who are in poverty, in need, in, under oppression. In this morning's scripture, Jeremiah is led by God to confront the leaders of his own people in a very, on the, uh, the topic, a very political issue. Specifically, God, through Jeremiah, is addressing slavery. Now, given that one of Israel's most identity-forming experiences had been their own enslavement in Egypt, from which God rescued them, we might think that God's people would never have allowed slavery of any sort in their own relationships in their societies, but they did. However, there were two mitigating factors to consider when we compare it to our own horror, uh, horrid history with slavery. First of all, slavery within their society was primarily an economic relationship from both sides. So for instance, if someone got into problematic debt, they could sell themselves to a wealthy person. In fact, uh, they could eventually then either work off that debt or if it was extremely problematic and, and uh, beyond their, their capabilities to work it off uh, in a short time, they could even sell themselves to someone permanently. The owners then would pay off that person's debt and then provide food and shelter. The law was also set up in a way that was supposed to keep slavery from becoming systemic and permanent. If you'll notice in verses 12 through 14 of our scripture this morning, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year, you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold themselves to you. After they have served you six years, you must let them go free. Walter Brueggemann uh, great commentator, um, professor at, former professor at uh, Columbia Seminary. He writes, the old Torah, the old law commandment held that debt slaves can only be held in bondage for six years and then must be released with their debt canceled. In a remarkable humane provision for the time and place, especially the law of Moses limited the ways in which the community could exploit such poor persons. They could not exploit. Through God's law, these provisions were essentially meant to care for people who were in a tough situation, but not leave them in that situation permanently. Sadly, though, we heard God said, I made this covenant with your ancestors, but they didn't listen to me. They didn't pay attention. 
The leaders chose power over people. But then it looked for one moment like the leadership would finally do the right thing. God even says, just after your ancestors didn't listen to me, in verse 15, we read, Recently, you repented. You changed your ways, and you did what was right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to their countrymen and women. Earlier, we had heard that that King Zedekiah had gotten all slave owners to free both their male and female slaves. But it didn't last. In verse 11, we had heard, afterward, they changed their minds. All these slave owners who had agreed to free them, they slaved their minds and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. In verse 16, God said, after you repented and did the right thing, but now you have turned around and profaned my name. I like the uh, King James translates it, you have polluted my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. We don't hear, actually I'll leave this open, we don't hear in this passage anything about why, about why the leaders and King Zedekiah wanted them to release their slaves in the first place. Nor do we hear anything about why they reneged on their promises. But regardless of what the reasons were, God is furious. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, verse 17. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom. So now I proclaim freedom to you. Freedom to experience plague, uh, famine, sword. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. The men who have violated my covenant, all of them, uh, I will basically leave them to their enemies. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. That is not a happy result. But notice how much of the emphasis God puts on the covenants that were made either by him with the ancestors or were made by his people in his name and whether or not those covenants were kept. Again, verses 13 and 14, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. I said every seventh year you must release them, but they didn't listen to me. And then in verse 15, you recently repented and did what was right, each of you proclaiming freedom. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name, in the temple. But you didn't keep your word. You broke that covenant. God is so upset for two very important reasons. These covenants were essentially vows of relationship that were to provide health and peace for the whole society. They were to benefit all people, 
not give power to a few. But the leaders have broken those covenants. In addition, these broken covenants bear God's name. The actions of the leaders should have reflected God's desire for society. Instead, the leaders are systematically oppressing the people, and they're doing so in God's name. They are doing the opposite of what God desires, but they're saying it is what God desires. Again, Walter Brueggemann. It is as though two views of social relationships are caught in a massive struggle. On the one hand, the act of covenanting is an acknowledgement that all persons are members of the community and each must care for all. On the other hand, commodity interest prevails over covenant and the strong work their will against the weak and at their expense. But God always chooses covenant over commodity. God always chooses people over power. We heard that in Jesus' own words from the parable about the sheep and the goats. He says to the sheep, be blessed, come into the kingdom because you provided food when I was hungry. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty, clothes when I was naked. You gave me a home when I was homeless. You visited me when I was sick, all of these things. And they say, when? When did we do that? And I just, I have to go back to that again because it's so significant for us. When he says, when I tell you, I'm telling the solemn truth, whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And likewise to the goats who didn't do those things. You didn't give me those things. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked and ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. And this is why Jesus lived to show us that this is the way God wants us to treat others, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless. This is what he calls his followers to. Paul wrote that so well in Philippians. If you have received any comfort from Jesus, any, any good news, uh, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness, any compassion, then be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look to only your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became humble and a servant and obedient even to the point of death. God has given us guidance on how to judge policies and plans and proposals. As a general rule, the more people who benefit, the closer we are to God's desire. 
especially when the more when more of those people who benefit are those in poverty, in need, or under oppression. And I believe it is vital for those of us who believe that this is the way of Christ to speak up and act out in our current time. Far too many of those who identify themselves as Christians and whose voices are heard by the public as speaking for Christ are in fact polluting God's name. Reverend William Barber II uh, is someone I believe is like Jeremiah for our time. Last week he was interviewed by the Washington Post and I wanna just read two questions and answers from this interview. Question one, uh, there are evangelical Christian preachers and leaders who adamantly support President Trump and most of them are white. What faith do you share with them, given that you see this president so differently? Answer. It is interesting to me how a person can literally go in and pray for a president to be successful, while that president and his enablers and his administration at every turn is praying on the very people that Jesus, the first evangelical, told us to be concerned about the poor, the sick, the thirsty, the immigrant. In that sense, the Trump administration, I never say just Trump because he's not by himself, has violated everything that Jesus said ought to be the first priority of nations. That is to care for the poor, care for the least of these. And so it grieves me that brothers and sisters who claim to follow Jesus would do this, and would be so loud on the things that Jesus is so quiet about and so quiet on the very thing Jesus is so loud about. And that's why it must be challenged. It cannot be allowed to just exist and be called evangelicalism when many times it is a form of heresy. Follow-up question. Do you think your message is a threatening one? No. I think it's a liberating one. It's not my message. It's the message of the Bible, our Bible. Most politicians put their hand on the Bible and swear themselves into office, and many don't even know what's in the Bible. There are 2,000 scriptures in the Bible that say a nation should be concerned first and foremost for how it treats the poor, women, children, and the stranger, the sick and least among us. That's not me, that is the scripture. You know, in one of our national uh, national hymns, it says, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. The second verse says, America, America, God mend thine every flaw. And down through the course of this American project, we have always needed prophetic movements and prophetic voices that were willing to be critics of the state in order for the state to mend its flaws and to move closer to a more perfect union. And so if it is threatening, it should be threatening to those who want to promote injustice over justice or those who want to value power over people. This is a fascinating time to be alive in both Seattle and the United States. In both 
there is significant awareness, at least, that the gap between the haves and the have-nots is bad and it's getting even worse. And in both city and country, we have a wide variety of people with a wide variety of ideas about how to make things better. This can be exciting, but it can also be very confusing. As we seek to live as followers of Jesus in the midst of all of this uncertainty, God has given us a general rule for everything or for evaluating policies, plans, and proposals. That is, the more people who benefit, the closer we are to fulfilling God's desire, especially when more of the people who benefit are those in poverty, in need, or under oppression. My evangelical heritage was correct in saying that Christianity is all about relationships. That is true. But the decision must be made by all of us, both for ourselves and for those to whom we entrust leadership. Will our relationships be guided by love for people or love for power? God has shown us the way in Jesus. It's love for people. Thanks be to God.